Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. I first saw Fish 25 years ago now, August 10th, 1996, at Alpine Valley. My first Fish show was December 1999 in Philly at the Spectrum. My first Fish show was December 28th, 1996 at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. I first saw Fish on May 30th, 1993 in Monterey, California, at a show that Bill Graham Presents put on that they called Laguna Seca Days. My first fish show was on April 2nd, 1991, at the International Beer Garden in Arcata, California. And my first fish show was November 26th, 1997. My first fish show was July 9th, 1994. Well, my first show was 5-19-94. My first fish show was April 15th, 1994 at the Beacon Theater in New York City. I was introduced to the music of Fish in the summer of 1993. I went to summer camp. Some of my best friends there at camp were big deadheads, and they had a huge collection of dead bootleg and would just listen to a different show or set every day. And eventually they made it through all of those sets and started listening to some other music, and they put on Lawn Boy by Fish. And immediately something within that music just captured my attention in a way that nothing I'd heard earlier that summer did. I got home from summer camp and uh, immediately bought Lawn Boy. 
I will never forget the experience of pressing play on that CD and getting to the end of the first track, The Squirming Coil, and I was all in by the end of that track. I mean, it just, it, it hit me in a way that, that no music ever had before. First fish tape. I think my first tape. So let's see. Um, what was your first fish tape? My first fish tape was New Year's '93. My first fish tape was Junta or Hunter on uh, double disc. I think my first fish tape was the um, New Year's show from Matthews Arena, which would have been like '92. The first time I heard Fish, I was riding in the car with my mom and I was listening to college radio and she went inside and I was sitting in the car with the keys in the ignition, waiting for her to come out. I grew up in a, a little town outside of Chicago called Cary, Illinois. Got the exposure from everybody's older brothers into Fish at an early age. Got introduced to Fish in a college dorm room um, that fall. Fell in love with it, but didn't didn't dive in. I was still kind of you know wet behind the ears, just out of high school. There's no cell phones. This was right as the internet was taking off, which is hard for people to imagine a world without internet and cell phones. Not too long ago. The world was less instant. In the beginning of the 20th century, we exchanged horses for horsepower. Then we exchanged telegrams for telephones. Then snail mail for email. And somewhere in mid-transition, four dorky college kids in Vermont formed a rock band called Fish. You might think all these things aren't connected, but they are. The Industrial Revolution, transistor radios, and telephones all connected the world in new and increasingly expedient ways, but that was decades ago. For most of us on this earth today, it was the internet that transformed the world before our very eyes. Millions of Americans own a personal computer. If you're one of them, you can now glimpse the future with nothing more than a modem, a phone line, and a few dollars a month. Just what is this main artery of the information superhighway? Everybody's you know, signing on and having these conversations and whining together or griping together or whatever. Well, it's very hip to be on the internet right now. With the A and then the ring around it? At? See, that's what I said. Don't attempt to adjust your dial. This isn't Radio Lab. But if it was, and you wanted to change podcasts to, say, one about fish, you wouldn't pick up a remote. You'd pick up your cell phone. You can choose from hundreds of thousands of podcasts with just a few taps of your index finger. You can listen to almost any song from almost any band you can imagine. Today, every fish fan has a device in their pocket or within reach at all times that gives them the ability to cue up just about every note the band has ever performed live within seconds. The most recent show they ever played? Japan 1999. How about Prep School Hippie? Prep School Hippie. 
maybe hip school preppy? Okay, that's actually not a thing. The technology that gave us that ability is the same technology that propelled Fish's career into a national phenomenon in the mid-1990s. And while Fish's story has been extremely well-documented and digitally archived, from message board to Instagram memes, and of course, via podcasts as well, one thing that sometimes gets lost in the tale is that Fish was perhaps the very first band to go viral. The Grateful Dead, through tape trade in communities and a vibrant parking lot scene, had established a social network long before that Zuckerberg guy could even spell Facebook. And when those tapers got it with fish in the early 1990s, including a bunch of tapers who were regulars on the well, fish tapes just exploded because a whole host of Grateful Dead tapers were suddenly showing up at fish concerts and making excellent audience recordings of fish concerts that everyone wanted to circulate. It's a huge part of this. Charlie Dirksen is vice president of fish.net. It's not an elected post, but it is a public one. I first saw fish at the Paradise in 89. I, you know, and I started collecting tapes and, and that sort of thing. I never became like, you know, a diehard fan really until 93 after seeing them at Wolf Trap. And even though I collected a lot of fish tapes, I didn't have, you know, anywhere close to the fish tape collection that I had even like by June of 94. Getting online, I was able to um, trade tapes with dozens and dozens more people than I ever had. But that's sort of how the early BBSs and music online virtual communities, how, you know, that sort of culture, you know, helped foster a love for fish. Tape trading was done in person and or with the help from the post office. At the end of season one of Undermine, we left you in the late 80s, right around the time that Fish's word of mouth reputation was growing within the Northeast college towns where the band was beginning to tour heavily. Many new fans at the time had heard the band's music as filler on the Dead's audience recordings. Other early converts first discovered Fish by stumbling into a college nightclub only to find that the band was jumping on trampolines while fans shouted strange things like, punch you in the eye, from the back of the room. Knowing the band's secret language, everyone in that room might fall down simultaneously or sing a random note or yell, no! That kind of first-hand experience with the band's 360-degree culture tended to leave an impression and more often than not transform the spectator into a lifelong fan. But by the early 90s, the ways in which new audiences discovered Fish shifted rapidly. Fish's growth began to center around college towns as colleges began to offer students free .edu internet accounts. Grateful Dead tape traders, which had long been active through classified ads in the back of Relics magazine, snail mail, or weekly meetups at pizza shops, coffee houses, or their student unions, would set up trades now via email and then they would dub the cassettes using two decks, write the set list out by hand on a post-it note or the tape's J card, and then have to drive to the post office to send them off to the recipient, tape by tape, one at a time. Even the most connected fans would have to wait at least a few days, more often a few weeks, or even months, to hear the latest show, once the postal worker delivered. It wasn't uncommon, during these kinds of Grateful Dead trades, to find filler on the... Dead space, pun intended, at the end of the cassette, from other bands that the particular tape trader was excited about, and in this way, many lifelong Fish fans' path of discovery began 
with a note attached to the cassette that said something like, Hey, check out this band. You would then pop it into the tape deck and listen in. I'm going to tell you about this song that I'm singing right here and some of the songs that we already sang before this tonight so I can clue you guys all in on exactly what's going on. And I know that some people, some people already know about that. There was no Spotify or Live Fish. Fish's community at the time was built person to person, an actual social network. Michael Lazaro recalls. The internet said that ubiquity is where the value is driven from. The wider things spread, the more valuable it became. And while some in the music industry took that as very threatening, there was a community around fish that embraced the internet and took a lot of what was happening with Grateful Dead and taping and the community. And it was just easier with the internet. As the internet became available in college computer labs, Fish's college presence grew. Then by the mid-90s, as the internet became increasingly available and affordable in suburban homes, the Fish community deepened. The effects of the emerging technology could be seen by the fact that in the early and mid-90s, Fish's online community ground to a halt in the summer and over the winter holidays when colleges were on break. Fans that still had access to the internet off campus would see their empty message boards and a tradition began of typing FLUFFHEAD in all caps into the emptiness as a way of saying, I'm out here. It was like a community roll call, and it was still a small community. Back in 1983, 1984, when Fish began playing gigs for the first time, um, around that same time, the earliest virtual or online communities were also in their infancy. In the halcyon days of Fish Online, Charlie Dirksen, who you just heard, was one of the first Fish celebrities. He had a reputation for strong opinions, not always favorable, in his line-by-line reviews of Fish jams. He also is perhaps the only fan who actually can hear the Fire on the Mountain tease in the New Year's Eve 95 Drowned Jam. They teased it just for you, Charlie. Macon Phillips worked in the White House under President Obama. He recalls meeting the vice president of Fishnet. I ended up buying some tickets from Dirksen like on Craigslist, and I remember I got to meet him in person, I was like, oh my God, it's totally fanboying out, you know? People would use a modem connected to their computer and a phone line and dial up, call what was called a BBS, or a remote bulletin board system. There were thousands of BBSs by the late 1980s. On these bulletin boards, there would be discussion forums about all sorts of topics, including sports, music, even role-playing games. Similar to what fans did, frankly, on Rec Music Fish, uh, Rec Music G-Dead, AOL and other websites in the 1990s, and similar also to what fans still do today in the threads on the Fishnet forum and on Fantasy Tour. One of the reasons that the internet was a great place for Fish fans to gather in the early years was that since the internet was all nonprofit, um, really the only folks who had internet access were people who were associated with research institutions or with universities. So most people who were in college in the 90s 
did have access, at least on campus, to computers that had email and, you know, potentially Usenet access. And that's how I first learned about the internet as a grad student at UC Berkeley in 1986. Shelley Culbertson worked for Fish's management company, Dionysian Productions, from 1993 until 2001 and was instrumental in the creation of Fishnet, Fish Tickets by Mail, and Fans Knew Her Name. She became a direct link between the band and the fans, as a fan who worked for the band but was still active in the community. Much like Amy Skelton before her, she's another example of how Fish's outreach goes both directions, blurring the lines between the Fish organization and the Fish community. I do feel that the online community for Fish, what took the grassroots community that they had already been developing by traveling so much and playing so many different places, it helped to take that to the next level. It helped them to have the kind of support that they needed amongst their fans to become successful without doing that in the way that was the typical path to success at that time. And then it gave them more freedom to make their own decisions when making contracts with record companies or when booking gigs that Fish had more power in those circumstances because their community was strong enough to support them outside of the typical commercial paths of communication. But one of the things that's been consistent across all the technology is that the community doesn't change much. The same conversations we had on, you know, Usenet and like AOL message boards and, you know, all of the fish tour sites and private messages with groups on WhatsApp is the same conversations we have in the parking lot as we wait for the show at intermission. They're people who I know for 30 years through fish. That was Lazaro again. Another recurring voice on this season, Andy Gadiel, created Jambase after first diving into the web with Andy Gadiel's fish page. Never heard of it? Then clearly, you were not there in 1.0. Noob. In 1993 and 94, the internet, and I was dialing into to D-dial systems and chat boards, 300 baud modem, insert your, your, your sound of a 300 baud modem right now. So it is with the sound of dial-up, not Henrietta's ba-ba-ba symbols, that we kick off Undermine Season 2. I'm Tom Marshall, Fish's lyricist, and your tour guide through the cosmos. Sorry. As we navigate from the computer lab to the parking lot, to inside the venue, and from there to Gamehenge and beyond, if we're lucky, if we step through the door.
The focus of Undermine Season 2 is the fish community. That means you. But it also means meeting a wealth of characters, from hippies to techies, from the people who work to put on the show, to the people who work so that they can go to show after show, night after night. Much like the band's music itself, the fish story is multifaceted and contains multitudes. It includes innovators and trailblazers, as much as it does grilled cheese vendors and rail riders. We'll go on both sides of the rail in this season of Undermine, and even fight our way down the aisle to bring you a beer, unfortunately half spilled by the time you get it. It's all waiting for you on the other side of this quick break. This season of Undermine is structured to resemble your fish concert experience. From loading up your car so you can follow a rock band across the country for the summer, to the moment we all wait for when the lights go down and the band takes the stage. But first, who or what the hell is fish? Somebody somewhere probably told you, hey, check out this band. Maybe you found them on the internet. We'll dive into that on today's episode and discover how the first fans discovered this underground sensation that has since swept the nation, and how the process of fish discovery has changed with the changing times. Throughout this season, we'll talk with people you've probably heard of, such as the band's former tour manager, Brad Sands, and with people you'll get to know, like the serial entrepreneur and fish aficionado, Michael Lazaro. But fish is really, to me, you, know, you hear Trey's guitar, and it, it flips a switch. You know, it's almost like the, the rattlesnake and the flute. And... And what hit me really early on was their idea to like create something an atmosphere, and environment, and execute it like crazy. And it all starts with the music. Fish fans will famously tell you up front, it's all about the music. And they're right, it is. But something like the Tahoe Tweezer isn't born in a vacuum. Not even a vintage 1965 Electrolux. There's a story for how fish got to where they are right now, and why they mean so much to each and every one of us on such deeply personal levels. And as with all good stories... This song begins <coughs> with an umpapa. Sure, but hearing him say that from a bar in Telluride, Colorado, only reinforces the role that live audience recordings and the online community that traded them have in Fish's origin story. It's a story that has an umpapa or two for sure, but there's a lot more to it. Enter Craig Hillwig. Craig is a longtime Fish fan, a taper, and a friend. And beyond that, I never really had a Sherpa because I immediately got involved into tape trees and just getting everything and making multiple copies of every show of every tour. There was a, a group called Operation Every Show that I was uh, very high level on. So I routinely got every show, listened to it multiple times as I made copies for the branches below me. And that was really my fish school in terms of 
learning the music, type two from type one, learning the show structures, how sets were structured, what common closers, combinations were, all those things were just as a result of repetitive listening. Craig potentially recorded the island tour shows that you had on a handwritten tape in your first apartment. He also taped a lot of Grateful Dead and Mo shows in the 90s. For you kids who don't appreciate what Maxell points are, fans in the 90s had to use an entirely different medium to listen to fish. Cassettes. We kind of talked about this earlier in the episode when we explained how the word of fish spread via filler on Grateful Dead tapes. The closest we have to that kind of ancillary discovery these days is someone texting you a link to a goose show while you're talking about what Fish played last night. More to the point, Fish soundboards were once highly coveted and rarely circulated treasures. These days, every note that Fish plays is officially released within hours of being played on a recording that is primarily soundboard-based. But back in the day, Fish kept their soundboard recordings in their vault, under lock and key, strategically leaking only the best ones after an assumed vetting process. For everything else, there were audience recordings. The tapers would have to purchase special tapers section tickets, bring thousands of dollars of the latest high-tech gear, including professional microphones and digital audio tape recorders known as DAT decks, and set up in a clustered, dedicated section usually behind the soundboard area, and all for your delight. While you were dancing and being reckless inside the show, free from all responsibilities, the tapers fastidiously captured every second of the show, perfecting, over time, microphone placement theory, and making sure to carefully keep an eye on recording levels, batteries, and tape flips. While you were socializing and recapping after the show, the tapers would immediately start making copies of their recordings and handing them off to trusted friends who swore to advance their objective of distributing the recordings via tape trades, tape trees, and blank and postage offers to the fish community at large, for free, out of love for and in service to the music. We owe these tapers a huge debt of gratitude, for without them, the fish scene could have never become what it is today. In many ways, the community's explosive growth in the late 90s was a direct result of their dedication. These are fans who recorded the shows at a professional level, at great personal cost, and who even gave up a certain amount of freedom and the ability to get lost in the moment inside a show so that we would enjoy the music time and time again after the fact. Of course, as we've said multiple times already in this very episode, times have changed in conjunction with the evolution of the internet. We often refer to lighting director Chris Carota as the fifth member of the band, but on the business side, the internet itself has a seat in the fish boardroom. Sorry, Craig, you were saying? With the tape medium, there's much less incentive to hit the skip button. You know, I, I, think, I think we listen to, to complete shows less than we used to and and now we tend to to dj more and and it's in part i think a lot as a result of the technology but i think it's also has to do a little bit with our declining intention spans in general as we've become more extremely online and nobody collects now i mean you used to collect shows but you don't need to now because they're always available to stream on demand 
That's something you don't want to hear at a fish show, or at a restaurant, or during a movie, or a ball game, or at any number of crowded public places. We're all aware that smartphones transform the entire world, and we're often vaguely aware that these changes have been both subtle and profound, immediate and long-term, annoying and helpful. It's changed the fish landscape in all these ways, too. Not only can we listen to last night's show, or any fish show ever, with absolutely no effort and no lag time between thought and execution, the need for fish criticism has shifted. Reviews can still steer you to discover a show, or a highly atypical version of a typical standard. I didn't know that I was that far or an unexpected must-hear jam. But back in the 90s, these critiques were very much more important, as it took time, money, connections, and a trip to the post office to be able to hear any particular set of any specific show. Drew Hitz is raising his hand over there. Yes, Drew? But there's one other thing about fish criticism, which is this. When, when I was collecting tapes, there was actually there was a reason why we ranked shows. And that is because when my friend Chuck, who was the guy who got me my first 60 fish tapes and 40 dead tapes in that spring of 94, when I said, okay, I got 10 blank tapes, you know, from the store. And that's when he said, wait a minute, you need 322.93 Crest Theater. This is a really famous show. It's the, you know, it's the Game Henge narration, which was the most current Game Henge at the time. You have to have this. Also, it's a soundboard, so it sounds good. And then he would say, well, you know, this show, you know, is a famous show from the front. You know, it's got like, you know, the horn sitting in, 3990 was one of my early ones. We had to rank shows in order to tell other people what to get. And that was another reason Fish fans flocked online. It wasn't just to keep up with the band, it was also to keep up with the music. And you did that by networking with other fans. As Shelley recollects... At the time when rec.music.fish was created, one of the things that was really wonderful about it was that, you know, it definitely created a sense of community. It created an opportunity for people to have a somewhat real-time conversation with other people about fish, even if they didn't have friends in their own community who were also fans of the band. I think they were the first band whose fans really mobilized the internet because the band didn't have an official website back in the day. In fact, no one did. Before web pages were a thing, fish fans began congregating in this new digital frontier called cyberspace. Fan ambassadors like Charlie Dirksen basically lived inside that matrix and survived to tell the tale. You know, Matt Lawrence started the first fish virtual community, essentially, via email list. And that's critical because that was really the first um, online fish community where set lists and shows could be discussed. And then Mikey came along and started collecting the set lists and emailing them to everybody on an email list. And so everyone on, you know, initially on Matt's email list eventually moved to Rec Music Fish once that news group got created. But at the same, around that same time, this 91 through 1993 time period, Mikey was uh, collecting fish set lists of all the shows, emailing them to people. 
And that work inspired, frankly, a lot of fans to try to see every fish show they could because they could see that the songs that they wanted to hear were being performed, you know, on different nights on a tour because fish was, you know, legit playing different shows every night. So yeah, it started in, I guess, as we're now seeing from those ancient emails I found around mid, you know, early June 91 was the first time I, I started putting together a mailing list. That's Matt Lawrence, the fan who first brought fish online. Uh, and it started with like 15 people, or it started like eight or nine, grew to about 15, and then we started to collect more. But it came right out of what, what Charlie was talking about, we wanted a place to talk about fish, and the closest online community we could find was Rec Music Judge G Dead. And technology in of itself, Rec Music Fish, was just another use of that group. We would get excoriated for posting fish stuff on that. that people could get, get off, get your own group. And we talked about it even earlier on. It's like, we should get a Rec Music Fish. And we were laughed out of the, the community, if I remember correctly, for saying, you know, nobody knows who these guys are. These, like, Led Zeppelin doesn't have their own group. What are you talking about, these guys fish? Once again, band fan liaison, Shelley Culbertson. I was part of the group that advocated for creating a dedicated news group for Fish, which was a relief to a lot of the Grateful Dead fans because they didn't need that conversation in their news group and we needed a place to have our own conversation. So when you even think about the name Rec Music Fish, you're seeing an information taxonomy of recreation, subcategory music, subcategory fish. You talk to anyone who was in rec music fish, there were rules and norms about what to post and how to do things. The blank and postage BNP experience had a very clear set of expectations and social norms about how it worked. And you had to send a padded envelope with this postage on it. And you had to like get these CDs and you had to put the labels just right. And when people deviated, like, people would flame them. You'd be like, wow, people get so angry over the littlest things. But then when you step back and you think about it, it's, it's kind of like the space shuttle. Like, if you aren't a stickler for details in a system that's really complicated, how can you expect it to work at scale? That voice belongs to Macon Phillips, who worked for the Obama administration as the White House Director of New Media and as a coordinator for the International Information Programs at the State Department. He's a huge fish fan and went to school at Duke University in the mid-90s. There was Usenet groups on all sorts of stuff, from, you know, kinds of printers to plants to astronomy. But this group online created this kind of community that then expressed itself offline through ticket swaps, through meetups, through blanks and postage, through all sorts of other uh, expressions that ultimately, I think, strengthened that core community even more. So my first Usenet group was a fish group. You know, I've been in the internet business way too long and half of your you know, day spent how to keep it clean, so to speak. And so there wasn't a lot on the internet that was of interest back in like 92, 93, 94. When you found your people, it was exciting. You found like-minded people to talk about anything. And fish was, for me, a big part of that. Recognize that voice yet? Michael Lazaro. I am an entrepreneur and now investor, venture capitalist. And the first fish show I went to was 1993 in a snowstorm at Bender Arena in Washington, D.C., where I grew up. 
He founded Buddy Media Inc. in 2007 that helped brands market on social media platforms. The company was sold to Salesforce.com in 2012. Yeah, so there were two things in college that I really was infatuated with. The internet and fish. Little did I know they would come together so beautifully. Fish was made for the internet, or may I say the internet was made for fish. And it was love at first, second, and third sight. You know, my first company, I started in 1994. I don't think it's a coincidence that I, you know, it was right after I saw them at American University. You know, it's really, there's something about the music and the community that is creativity at its best. Um, you know, improvising, like as an entrepreneur, you're improvising every day. As the band began to expand exponentially, like some recursive, ah, uh, never mind they began to outgrow their little corner of Usenet. When colleges were in session, rec.music.fish would see a flurry of activity, including extraneous info, ticket grovels, flame wars, and fake news. Sound familiar? But where now you can cherry-pick what you click on? Usenet groups presented all content linearly. Think of the difference between cassettes and CDs and being forced to manually fast-forward versus skip to the next track. To help rein this in, a fan named Rosemary McIntosh created something called Rosemary's Digest. Rosemary would sit and filter out all the noise, compiling only relevant posts into a digest, which subscribers would receive via email anywhere from one to during peak periods, five times a day. I was so obsessed with Fish when I first got into them that I wanted to learn everything I could about this band. Part of that was reading the news groups, and at that point, there was no, you know, fantasy tour right now is a good example. Um, Paul Glace is a, is a friend of mine, and you, you can't read everything on Fantasy Tour. There's just no time, and no, you know, you go insane. But luckily, the way that it, you know message boards are these days, you can read the the heading of the of the you know the topic. And at the time, this was the dawn of the internet, and so I would be in a college computer lab, and there'd be you know all these rock music. Fish would have a lot of posts all at once. And a lot of it was bullshit. And so Rosemary was doing it first and I used it and I really appreciated it. And she needed to kind of like the Dread Pirate Roberts hand it off to somebody else. And I was, you know, a college kid at the time and I was like, I'll, I'll do it. And I remember actually she, she got mad at me. I think she regretted her decision. She got mad at me and so did some other people because I didn't do it every day because I was seeing fish for about a week. And I was like, I'm, I was like, I'm out here doing the things that we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> That's Benji Eisen, who some of you 1.0ers will recall took over Rosemary's Digest with Benji's Digest, more commonly known at the time as the iGest. These days, Benji manages bands such as Billy and the Kids and is a New York Times best-selling author. He's also the new head writer for Undermine. But at the time, if you wanted to read every amusing satirical note that Charlie Dirksen wrote about Trey flubbing the note in You Enjoy Myself, or hear anecdotes about various fan interactions with the band, such as, I ran into Trey at the Iron Horse and he says there's a new song called Gaiuti, without having to sift through ticket grovels, flamethrowing trolls, or off-topic garbage, you had to subscribe to the iGest. Even Trey's father, Ernie, was a subscriber. So was I. But just as more and more college students were logging into the internet, the internet itself was evolving. The information superhighway was expanding. 
The first web browser to browse the web was actually called World Wide Web. It launched in 1990. Mosaic followed, and then in 1994, Netscape Navigator changed the way most people accessed the internet. Anyone could create their own online hub, a place that lived inside cyberspace instead of BBS, Usenets, or emails. We started seeing web pages, and it was free. Enter into the fish story Andy Gadiel. Via an online destination called Andy Gadiel's Fish Page, instead of downloading multiple iGests a day and wading through them, fans could open up their web browser, point it to Andy's page, and voila, tour dates, rumors, and resources were suddenly all in one place. It became Fish Central for the online space. Kind of like the student union for Gamehenge University. A sizable portion of the mid-90s Fish audience would check it religiously, including Macon Phillips. And, like, that was, like, my Moses, bro. Like, my tablets. And, like, I would just, like, read everything I could possibly find about, like, shows. I think a few years later, I got the first uh, Farmer's Almanac. I remember that was the first time I heard about the Mockingbird Foundation and sort of it was all for that. And I was just fascinated by, like, the encyclopedia that was being created around sort of the work. So I actually spent a lot of time reading that, and a lot of it was through the internet. Fish may be one of the first subjects in my life I learned about primarily through digital sources. There wasn't a Helping Friendly book, bro. You know, it was the Helping Friendly website, and that was uh, Andy Gadel's Fish page. Let's hear it from Andy's own perspective. I can't remember, but I, I'm sure I tried to be complete. So the idea was when you came to the site, you would get that front page of the newspaper kind of hit of, can I get everything I need to know about the current state of affairs for fish? And sometimes, even if there wasn't something new, I would kind of rearrange it a little bit so it felt fresh. People are refreshing or they're coming back every day. If they see something new, they're, they're gonna trigger a response of saying, oh, okay, then I'll come back more. Andy Gadiel. And so when I got to college and I suddenly had all this access to the computer systems, I studied computer science in college. I think I might have had a class where they said, your project is to make a web page, which at the time, a web page was save this file on our file system and it will be available on the internet. And then they're like, you know, talk about something you like. And so at the same time, I was getting into fish, hanging out with people cooler than me, and they, they said, make a project about something you're interested in. And so I created Slash Fish. And for lack of a better naming convention, I called it Andy Gadiel's Fish Page. Andy Gadiel wasn't the only fan curating information about fish. There was another Andy, Andy Bernstein. Privy to the online fish world, but keenly aware that it was largely inaccessible away from a desktop computer, Bernstein collected the information that was being freely generated and compiled online and took it offline so that fans could have access to it anywhere, on the road, in the parking lot, or even, as the book itself says on the cover, on the toilet. He and his partners published it in book form and called it the Farmer's Almanac. During its heyday, it was the unofficial but ubiquitous textbook on fish, and in the late 1990s, the Farmer's Almanac was required reading for any serious or not-so-serious fan. Its dominance in the bathrooms of fish fans everywhere underscored the fact that the digital world was still partitioned, confined to desktop computers. Internet access was not yet handheld or pocket-sized. 
the first few years when we were doing the almanac, I think part of it was we just wanted to like meet other people like ourselves who loved the band and had similar senses of humor. And, and eventually it did that. And then we just started talking it through and said, well, what if we combined the information and the history with the individual fan stories? And that was the spark that became the almanac where, you know, fish is funny, like fish fans are funny. The fish experience is funny. Let's bring out that humor, but also let's like educate. Like we were so interested in this. Let's, let's get all the information in one place. Let's take all the different research sources and bring them all together so that someone could become an expert. Andy and his partners handed the next generation almanac to the next generation of almanac staff headed by Kevin Castles. Andy and, and the almanac street team would hand out um, little newsletters at the shows to let everybody know what they had played the previous night or the night before that. Um, so it was a way for people to keep up with everything on tour. So anyway, they posted a little thing in there that they were looking for someone to take over the book. And I was just at the right time in my life. I was 23 or 24. I gathered some friends together and we, we jumped all over it. Every good story, somewhere between the um papa and the happily ever after, needs a conflict. Some of the early elder statesmen of Fish's online community, mostly the fans who saw their information sharing as a labor of love while they meticulously compiled and annotated set lists, were furious that the Farmer's Almanac editors profited from converting the fans' free online set list file into an anthology that you bought at your local brick-and-mortar record store or head shop. The free online set list file had been called The Helping Friendly Book, which was a nod to the band's rock opera Gamehenge and its fictional tome, which allegedly contained all the knowledge inherent in the universe. In that way, then, some in the inner circle of the online fish community viewed the farmer's almanac editors as the story's evil King Wilson, villains who stole the helping friendly book from the lizard people, selling it back to them for a profit. So I hope you are all with me following this story. If not, ask the guy next to you. Or just look it up for free on the fishnet. But most of those people owned the almanac. Like they, they'd be bashing us, but they, th there was something about the book they liked enough to buy it. So you know, in the end, I th and I think most of that is forgotten at this point. It's the battle over Gamehenge and control over the lizard people. What's good? What's evil? Who does Biz Archive really work for? Does the famous Mockingbird Foundation steal the Helping Friendly book back? And where does the Doniak Schweiss fit into all of this? All that and more when we return. Back on college campuses, many new Fish fans signed up for their first email account to try to learn more about the band. They may have had the latest edition of the Farmer's Almanac on their bedside table, bookmarked at the Bomb Factory set list with ink-smeared markings that meant, find this recording, but by the time they bought the book and brought it home with them, the almanac was already outdated. There was no way for it to include the set list from the night before. If it did, maybe they picked up something more than just the almanac from the head shop. That same limitation afflicted the band's official newsletter, the Doniak's Vice. That free newsletter was mailed out periodically, 
announcing the latest tour dates, offering the latest dry goods, and entertaining answers to everyday fan mail. But online, fans could report back to other fans in near real time, sometimes even about the show they just saw earlier that night. Right, Shelley? What I really valued about the early days of the fish community online was that there was a single place where we could come together. Obviously, there were tons of folks who were coming to fish shows who had no knowledge of nor interest in the fish online community as well. But if you were interested in being online and you were interested in being in an online community pertaining to fish, it was just this one place. More from Drew Hitz. And so I used to have to go to the library at Northwestern where I would use a terminal where I would log on to rec.music.fish. And I spent more time in that part of the library than I did in the music library, which is funny since I was majoring in music and not in fish hot takes. But yeah, I really cherish that early community. You know, the Usenet group is actually still up and, you know, the archives are all still there. There's lots of, uh, yeah, there's lots of cringeworthy posts from myself and others that live to this day. Back to Shelley, who at this time was seen by many in the community as being the spokesperson for the band in some ways, as she interfaced with the fan community and the band's front office. But of course, this would have been, you know, pre-AOL or anything like that. Like all of the activity online, everything was just simply plain text. I, I remember when web browsers first came out and what a novelty it was to associate pictures with text. But I also think it's very interesting that even in those very early days, even in 1991, I had the opportunity to do a few interviews with band members explicitly for the purposes of putting them onto rec.music.fish, sharing them with fish fans. And they were very supportive of it. I know that Trey's father, I believe he worked with AT&T and certainly was associated with the internet in its early years. And they had a clear understanding of the potential of the internet. Even talking to them in 1991, before there was such a thing as a web browser, they could clearly see the potential that there would be a time in the future when you could live stream shows and videos, even though that was completely off the radar in the rest of the world at that time. Back in the analog realm of the physical world, fish still used the traditional methods of the day to reach and communicate with their fan base. And I basically just executed the system exactly as I had learned as a participant in Grateful Dead's mail order ticketing. My first Dead show was April 83 at Hampton Coliseum, which was just when the Dead were starting their mail order ticketing. Um, So I had the luxury of learning to do that and ordering tour books of tickets from the Grateful Dead, understanding how the timing worked and just applied that same practice to the fish mail order ticketing. They certainly were not territorial about having developed that system. They were happy that another band was able to do that as well, especially uh, with some of the challenges as time passed with Ticketmaster not necessarily being um, open to many bands doing mail order ticketing. We 
were able to start that process early enough that it was already well established by the time we started having bigger venues so that it was, wasn't really something that could be denied at that point. We also had a hotline, which was just literally like a machine with little mini eight track tapes. And I would have to record the outgoing messages with all of the tour dates and the on-sale times and get it all right in what, because if I messed up, I'd have to go back and start the whole recording over. And I only had the length of the tape um, in order to do that. Handing the mic back over to Matt Lawrence, father of the fish internet. I'm going to get ahead of him here for a moment and mention that in the mid-90s, Matt was in a New England jam band called Yep with John Green, who he's about to mention. Green now moonlights in the Bay Area fish cover band called Chum. Shelly was a huge Dead fan, but John Green and then I, mostly John, turned her on to fish for the first time. And she got hugely into them, obviously became like their biggest West Coast evangelist early on. And then when she moved out east to join Dionysian Productions and be their assistant manager, she actually lived with me for like three months because she had nowhere to live. So, and, and I lived the next town over from Waltham where, where Dionysian was. We spent that winter into the spring going to a lot of shows with a lot of backstage passes. Right now it's easy to go. There are databases. You can see how many times they played this song and you know how many times they played that arena and the intersections of different songs and arenas. And you know, back then there wasn't anything. And so you, you talk about it and you'd waste time. All I can say is a lot of us who got into fish didn't have much of a social life. We liked live music. It wasn't that popular on the dating scene. The thing about college students is that most of them graduate and make their way into the real world. For those graduates who frequented the computer labs in the back of their school library to talk about this band, their fish fandom may have continued unaffected, but their free time didn't have that luxury. The first generation of fish geeks gave way to the next. The Charlie Dirksons and Andy Gadeals were succeeded by people like Scott Marks, who rose through the ranks of fish Twitter by live tweeting set lists and statistical facts and is now a board member of the Mockingbird Foundation. Run by fans, for fans, in full view of the band, the Mockingbird Foundation is as unique to fish as trampolines are to their live show. What other band has fans who donate free time to running a non-profit organization dedicated to supporting music education while simultaneously preserving and perpetuating the band's history. The Mockingbird Foundation was formed by the original vanguards of Fish's online community, and it was their direct response to the Farmer's Almanac's commercialization of the setlists file. They formed initially to create a competing version of the Farmer's Almanac but instead of profiting from its publication, they would donate all proceeds to music-related nonprofits. No other band has anything like this on any level. There's a competitive grant process that is done on a fairly regular basis. And then in some instances are non-competitive grants, such as emergency grants that are given to schools that, for example, lost their music to a flood. So as a director, there's work involved in researching uh, potential grantees, the practicality of getting the grants up and running. There's also work around fundraising. Um, and then sometimes there are specific events or campaigns that we run. That's Stephanie Jenkins, 
Dr. Jenkins, actually, a professor of philosophy at Oregon State University, and Scott Marks' colleague in the Mockingbird Foundation. Scott can attest that even the modern-day fishnet is still maintained by very human beings. Has the fishnet evolved to a place where AI can just grab and automate the setlist file? No, literally there is somebody in the back end during the show that is entering the set list. So somebody will be listening to the show either on like a stream or if there's a webcast. So it's literally entered in real time. I'm not texting anything to anybody during the show. I might check on the set list at Separate and say, oh, well, there was a tease in this here or that should be that. And I might reach out to the person that is on set list duty or I just might say the hell with it and wait till the next day or after the show to update it myself and just enjoy myself. Uh, usually, I'm not entering the set list during the show. I've had to do it in a couple of emergency situations. Emergency is a loose word, but if we haven't had somebody that night, then I, I would rather have the set list still entered. You know, the show must go on, if you will. Fishnet has always enjoyed a Switzerland position on the fish map. It's not officially sanctioned by the band, who made the conscious decision to let the fans own and operate their space. By the fans, for the fans. But as you heard above, Fish gave their nod to it early on, which was followed by winks, nods, and a certain amount of cooperation, or at least appreciation, while allowing it to be autonomous. They've been able to maintain that kind of relationship to this day, largely because Fishnet remains a non-commercial community space, with a non-profit charitable component that benefits the music community at large. But as the internet grew and evolved, so did Fish's online fan community. What started out as a BBS news group so that fans could share information and build their own personal knowledge of this upstart band out of Vermont blossomed into an entire cottage industry with a large online footprint as the internet map itself grew and expanded outwards. Remember, as we detailed earlier, when Fish fans began to flock online, web pages didn't even exist yet. But pretty soon, things moved from news groups to web pages. And with web pages came message boards, and with message boards came an increased ability for fans to trade tapes. The internet was still too slow just to download the music and connect. It also created a safe space for flame wars. It was largely uncensored and unregulated, the wild frontier of cyberspace. True, although um, when I first introduced Fantasy Fish in fall of 1999, it wasn't yet a message board, so there was no community building component at that time, other than to say that people were coming together to compete in the setlist prediction game. That's Paul Glace, who built Fantasy Tour. In 2012, Glace quit his job at a management consulting firm to run Fantasy Tour full-time as its CEO. The site began as an exercise in coding, much like Andy Gadiel's fish page. When Paul launched the site in 1999, it was as much an exercise in learning how to build something on the new world wide web as much as it was an indulgence in his passion for fish. Fantasy Tour eventually became an online destination that essentially replaced rec.music.fish and even eclipsed Andy's page. But everything overlaps. And then, that was it. Fish was open for business on the World Wide Web. You could go to Fantasy Tour and create your own version of the curated rec.music.fish digests by cherry-picking for yourself which threads you wanted to open, read, and participate in. You could look up past set lists either on Fantasy Tour or on Fishnet, which had also become a fan destination on the web. 
And you could go to the officialfish.com to find the latest announcements instead of having to call the hotline or check Andy's fish page 20 times an hour. Over the course of this episode, we detailed how Fish's community blossomed in tandem with the explosion of the internet. First, it was college kids in computer labs, then fans logging in online on their parents' desktop computers, which were hooked up to the internet via dial-up. The next major shift in Fish online and the community reliant on it happened when high-speed internet arrived, and then wireless internet, Wi-Fi. These evolutions allowed the internet to be even more integrated into our daily lives without having to go to a computer lab or internet cafe. With faster speeds came the ability to download music and podcasts that kind of changed everything all over again. There was no longer a need to trade tapes by mail. You could download shows straight to your computer and burn them onto CDRs. Then along came smartphones, which put all the above in our pockets, with Fish taking up real estate on universal apps such as Facebook and Instagram. It's interesting to me that problems that we have now on the internet, not all the problems we have now on the internet, but some of the basic ones like trolls have been with the internet since day one. I think, unfortunately, now there's more damage that people can do on the internet than there was in the early days. But the tendency for people to not always be at their best because they say things online that they wouldn't say to other people face-to-face, unfortunately existed from the early days. So I guess I've always kind of taken that with a grain of salt because it just seems to be human nature, kind of like road rage. (laughs) So I couldn't say why it comes with the territory, but, you know, I think that people aren't always at their best when they aren't treating the other people that they're talking with as people. And when they're more interested in saying what they have to say than listening to what other people have to say. If you were there back in the day, then maybe this episode took you back for a moment. Your eyes are feeling heavy, your nose light. Close your eyes and you're there. But wake up. It's been nearly 30 years. A lot has happened since, and the online world, let alone the online world of fish, looks as different now as the world at large. Fish's online community has migrated from Usenet to Fantasy Tour to Facebook and now expresses itself as a never-ending series of memes on Instagram and tweet storms on Twitter. It's fractured and fragmented, but still active and thriving, in some ways more so than ever before. There are still trolls and flame wars and fake news everywhere, not just in the fish sphere, but there's also more diversity in the scene than ever before, as Fish has spawned subgroups and countercultures within their counterculture, as fish has become more visible and embedded into American culture at large. We've aged, and the scene has matured along with us, but it's evolving still. Every time you pick up your phone and open an app, you can find something new there from this vibrant community. It's the Gateway to Fish 4.0, and the heat goes on. These days, as we sit at the top of this hour, Anything you want to know, see, hear, smell, or experience about fish is available to you 
in the same way that you're able to listen to me speak at this very moment. Well, maybe not smell, but we are a visible community when we all come together under the big top for the main event, live shows. And we'll get into that in the very next episode. And throughout the season, as we trace our journeys from where we are now to the parking lot and from there to inside the arena, in between tours, we gather here invisibly, except perhaps for some donut swag, online, in virtual gathering places like Facebook and Instagram. And the heat goes on. Rob Corwin, you've been patient. Your turn. So I have, I have a I have an old car that's sort of more more of a friend than a vehicle that only that only has a tape deck in it. I refuse to upgrade the stereo because you know it, it's good the way it is. Um, and in the trunk, there's a there's a box of cassette tapes, and it's the one place I listen to them, which are just I mean they're so special and just the, like even this taking them out and looking at the labels that somebody wrote by hand and the the care and craft they put into that. Um, especially on some of them are insane, right? And then just, uh, this idea of just driving down the road, listening to this tape that can't exist again, even though, you know, full transparency, I've got a Bluetooth cassette I can put in that deck and stream whatever I want from my phone, but somehow streaming, streaming the show off a cassette that somebody sent me 20 years ago on a 30-year-old stereo is, there's something kind of primal about that, right? It makes me understand why people treasure vinyl and, you know, and, and stereo components of radio tubes. There's, there's something about it that's just authentic in a way that I'll, I'll never stop treasuring for sure. Well, this is Tom Marshall. And you just listened to the season two opener of Undermine. We heard from some of Fish's early adopters about how they heard about the band in the first place, and then what some of them did to make sure that many other people heard about the band as well. We went online from the days before web pages existed to the development of online fish hubs, some of which, like Fantasy Tour, have evolved and continue to thrive to this day. In many ways, the internet was the spark that allowed Fish's scene to explode in size and scope. Thanks for going on a drive with us. Now that we learned how we learned about this band, let's follow fans from their driveways to the next show as this season puts the spotlight on the Fish community. Next time on Undermine, it could be your headlights up front, your tailpipe, or the skylight above you because we'll go on the road with Fish. For me, Fish has always been about community, and it's been about a group of people that are really in a moment together and actually present. We spend so much time, I think, checked out or you know, in a different place or thinking about what happened or what's happening next, and Fish really is a place where everybody is there. See you there, right here, next week. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media, the leading music storyteller. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Written by Benji Eisen. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Produced by David Goldstein, Jonathan Hart, Brad Tenbrook, and Don Jenkins. Production assistance and writing by Noah Eckstein. Original music by Amar Sastry. Show art by Mark Dowd. Thank you to all of our interviewees. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.
not have a first fish tape because I am 29 years old. Osiris. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.